Johnstown, Pennsylvania, located southeast of Pittsburgh, was a small factory town of about 30,000 citizens in 1889. Their town sat at the fork of two rivers that were known to overflow their banks each spring when heavy rains came. These floods were a staple, and as a result, these people didn't feel much reason to control them. They didn't cause much damage, and so they didn't see much fear of them. Now, about 15 miles up one of the rivers sat a resort, which included a large lake that was contained by an old stone dam. Johnstown's residents knew that if this dam ever were to break, this emptied lake water was going to wipe their town out, and a variety of engineers agreed with them, warning them that the dam needed to be rebuilt. But they repeatedly balked at the idea because they didn't have enough resources to invest in the project, and each year the dam held. In May 1889, a downpour caused caused the lake to rise rapidly. And the caretakers of the dam knew that if the rain kept pouring, Johnstown would be in trouble. And so they wired messages hour after hour, warning the citizens of a potential break at the dam. But the townspeople dismissed these warnings, reasoning that this was a normal spring flood. They had no reason to fear in some cases, after hearing these warnings coming from upriver, Johnstown's residents laughed at the prospect of a break. So concerned by how complacent these townspeople were and clear about the danger that lay ahead, one of the caretakers in flood conditions rode by horseback down into the city and told them in the streets, the dam might break, you've got to get to the hills. And some people listened to these warnings, but most people didn't. Even the city officials blew it off. They didn't even take the time to inform the broader community about this potential danger. And just hours later, the dam gave way, and a great three-story wall of water rushed on toward Johnstown. The flood came with great force, and that day, 2,209 people lost their lives. Now, who was at fault for this awful disaster? You know, was it the resort owner? After all, he, he knew that the dam had some problems. It wasn't in the greatest of repair. What well, was it, as many suggested, God's fault? Because he let the rains come and he didn't stop them. Well, rain comes and floods happen and dams break. The blame lies with the people of Johnstown. They were irresponsible. They were short-sighted. They were thoughtless. They were naive. And they were foolish. They were complacent in the face of repeated warnings. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus has some warnings for us. And the key question is, will we be short-sighted, foolish, and complacent in the face of his warnings? Your Kingdom Come is a series of five message, messages about King Jesus and what he regularly calls the kingdom of God. This third message is called the narrow door because it's through the narrow door that you enter the kingdom of God. If you have a Bible with you, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 13 and you can take out your weekly welcome so you can take some notes. Jesus invites you to enter his kingdom, but he also warns you that the door will soon be shut. In fact, let this sink in. 
How you respond to Jesus now when you hear and have the chance to respond is determinative for how Jesus will respond to you in the future. That's the gist of these verses in Luke chapter 13. I want to identify three warnings in this passage for us, and I want to start by reading the passage in its entirety. So if you're following along, Luke chapter 13, 22 to 30, then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and who are first and will be last. Three warnings. Warning number one, time is short. Jesus' warnings in this passage come on the heels of a very interesting question. Since we've stepped into the middle of chapter 13, we might think that this question and this subsequent interchange come out of nowhere, but actually this all makes a good deal of sense in the sequence that Luke has presented thus far. Immediately preceding our passage, Jesus addresses the progress of the kingdom by highlighting the fact that the kingdom starts off small and slow, like mustard seed and yeast, but eventually increases and is quite pervasive. This harkens back to what we covered last week about the present yet future, already not yet nature of the kingdom of God. So if after last week you're still a little bit puzzled about all that, then you're in good company with the guy who is walking along with Jesus' entourage on his way to the city of Jerusalem. As Luke notes Jesus' activities on his way to Jerusalem, the small impact of Jesus' kingdom, a parable told here, a healed person there, causes this guy to wonder if this kingdom business is just going to include a few people. Are only a couple of people going to be included in Jesus' kingdom? Because it looks like this kingdom impact is relatively small. If it's all about the growth of a mustard seed and the tiniest bit of yeast working its way through a batch of dough, then clearly only a couple of people are going to be in. And so Luke records this question in verse 23. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now again... This is a very interesting question, and I've already said it makes good sense in the context of Luke 13, but it also makes good sense in the context of the first century. This guy in the crowd and Jesus aren't the first people to have this conversation. There there was a lively discussion, a theological debate about who and how many or few would be saved, and there were, not surprisingly, a variety of opinions about it. Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, had spoken about a great banquet that was going to take place in the kingdom of God, and some concluded that few would be involved in that banquet, and others concluded that fewer than few would be involved. So, for example, 
One person around this time commented that God made this world for the sake of the many, but the world to come for the sake of only a few. And, as is often the case, the only the few included the guy who was saying this and his good buddies. The guys in his in-group. We're the good guys, and everybody else is the bad guys. We're on God's side, and they're not. We'll clearly be in. So Jesus gets this question, are only a few people going to be saved in a supercharged environment? This thing is getting batted around. I would encourage you to sort of imagine it like a political campaign. You know, a variety of people are vying for opportunities to win people over to their side, their party, their agenda. And this question is one of the central questions that can get you people onto your side. And so Jesus gets the big question. And everybody's interested to know whether his answer will be, there are going to be few or there are going to be many. And everyone is interested to know whether or not, like this guy asking the question, is he, because he's asking the question, he's walking with Jesus, is he one of the ones That's already on the inside I'm in with Jesus. Jesus gets the question, and everyone wants to know his answer, and his 24-word answer is found in verse 24. But before I read it again, let me stress this again. The question is a natural one in light of what Jesus had been saying and what Jesus had been doing. The question was batted around often at the time, and it's those facts that make Jesus' response all the more arresting. Verse 24, he said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Now, because of the seriousness of these words, and for a little bit of dramatic effect, I'm going to read them one more time. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Now, the question that struck me as I read this is this. Did Jesus answer the question? Well, he did. But as is always the case, Jesus reframes the question itself by the answer that he offers. You'll recall, as I've just outlined a moment ago, this debate is concerned to draw lines around who is already saved, the few on the in-group. It was typically answered with me and my groupies. But Jesus focuses not on who is in, but instead on the fact that many will be left out. Many will be lost. Jesus doesn't speculate about the few or the many that will be included. Rather, he directs the questioner and the crowd around him to see the issue of greater importance. Many will be lost. He says, many, I tell you, will try to enter and won't be able to. The discussion is shifted from an abstract theological topic of who is in and who's out of salvation or the kingdom. And instead, while looking at these particular people who are walking along with him on his way to Jerusalem, and by implication, us, Jesus says, many will be lost. Many of you will be lost. He says, many will be lost, and he asks, are you one of them? Our concern shouldn't be with who's in or out, but whether we're in or out. That's Jesus' concern, and it's the concern that leads to the gracious invitation in the first part of verse 24. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. 
Now, as this passage unfolds and we look at the next several verses, it will become clearer and clearer, I hope, what it means to enter through the narrow door. But at this stage, I just want to park for a moment on the phrase, make every effort. You know, what is Jesus calling for when he tells us to make every effort to enter the kingdom? Well, what Jesus is calling for is perfectly illustrated by the movie Lincoln. I want to show you a clip from the movie, but I want to set up the context a little bit for us. Lincoln has, at this point, already emancipated the slaves, but only as a war measure that isn't sufficient to deal the death blow to slavery as a whole. And so the Civil War is waning on and on, and Lincoln recognizes the moment for what it is, and he recognizes that the window of time is quickly closing, and he needs to act in this moment. He needs to act decisively, and he needs to compel those around him to recognize what is before them. Now, now, now! Lincoln recognized the moment for what it is, and he recognized the need to respond appropriately. Many will be lost, and you might be amongst them, Jesus says. So recognize the moment, which is now. This is the time for responding, and respond appropriately by entering through the narrow door. Jesus says, see the moment And seize the moment. Stop ruminating on it and make a decision. Stop kicking the tires and buy the stinking car. Stop window shopping and make a selection. Jesus says with this moment of sober-mindedness, when you recognize that you might be amongst the lost, strive. Make every effort. Get serious about entering the kingdom. This is the way he said it in the book of Matthew, using a couple more parables. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought the field. See the moment and seize the moment. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything he had and he bought it. The treasure hunter, the merchant, both of them were able to see the moment and seize the moment. They made every effort. They were striving and they entered the kingdom. But here's the problem. We're serious about just about everything else but this. Our time and our energy and our resources are occupied by dozens of of other things, so that even if we were sobered by the fact that Jesus says many will be lost, we're probably not going to put get serious about entering the kingdom on our priority lists. Because we've got a career to manage, or a family to take care of, or a future to think about. You know, we've got immediate health concerns that take up a lot of the mental time and energy that we have in life. We've got business issues to attend to and exciting opportunities and prospects to consider. So so we hear this warning and, and the concern that comes with it, and we may even grant that it's worth considering, but it doesn't demand our immediate response. In Luke 9, just a few chapters before this one, We learned that Jesus was walking along one day and he called out to a guy saying, follow me. 
But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Jesus says that we need to get serious about entering the kingdom. And we protest that we've got plenty of time. And he responds, graciously issuing the warning, time is short. The window is closing and you've got to seize the moment now. The saved are those who seize the opportunity now. Once the time for decision has passed, attempts to gain salvation afterward will be futile. Warning, Jesus says, act now lest, as we'll see in a moment, the door gets shut in your face. Warning number one, time is short. Warning number two, status doesn't count. I've got an interesting story to tell you about one of the staff members here at Christ Community Church. Angie Jenkins serves to support Pastor Jim administratively, and that's no easy task, let me tell you. <laughs> Angie was born in Germany to a German mom and to an American father. And she didn't know this until later in life, but her father actually had adopted her. She lived until her 40s under the assumption that her dad was her dad and that although the fact that she was born in Germany she, to a German mom, she was an American citizen. Surprise! She wasn't, and she still isn't. Now, the, the laws have changed now, but when she was adopted, she, as a dependent of her dad, was not given American citizenship. Now, you're probably wondering yourself, how did she not realize this until she was in her 40s? Actually, she learned about the adoption thing when she was in her 40s. She learned about the citizenship thing just a few years ago. And that's because she applied for a passport because she really wanted to go on one of the GO teams with Christ Community Church. She applied for the passport, and she was denied. Surprise! She was told that she wasn't an American citizen. And this gets even stranger. As a non-American citizen, Angie was background checked, had fingerprints, worked for the government, has a social security card, has been paying into social security since she was like 15 years old, has a driver's license, traveled in and out of the United States to surrounding countries, and, get this, voted. It's unbelievable. Can you imagine the surprise when she discovered that her status wasn't what she thought it was? Angie, who had been operating under the assumption that she was an American citizen for her entire life, is now living on a green card, waiting to apply for citizenship. Surprise! In the parable that we're about to look at, there's a group of people in for a very similar surprise. Surprise, you're not in the position you thought you were in. Surprise, you were under the assumption a lot of things were true that aren't true. Jesus has already warned us of the need to act now by getting serious about entering the kingdom. Now he's going to warn us that our claims to status don't count for entrance, even if we think they do. Take a look at verses 25 to 27. Jesus says, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. 
But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. These are chilling words, and they're apparently the words that many will hear who try to enter the kingdom of God but are not able to do so. Now, my guess is at this point that either while considering the first warning or even just reading this parable, you've had a nagging question sitting uncomfortably inside you. I skimmed so quickly in some ways over the fact that many will be lost, and that has to start to mess with you a little bit. In the face of it, we want to ask the simple question, why? Why will many not be able to enter? Why will so many be lost? And the answer is, at some point, the owner of the house, who is in this case Jesus, is going to get up and close the door to the kingdom. Lots of people will have done nothing about Jesus' warning about the time being short, but still, even after the time is of salvation is past, many will seek in vain to enter, pounding their fists into a closed door. And some of us might want to accuse God of injustice when we consider these kinds of things. You know, many people want to say, how awful that God won't let these people in, especially because they all seem to think that they should be allowed into his kingdom. But catch this. Being on the outside of the narrow door is not God's fault. Instead, we should be thinking, how awful that they didn't respond when the door was still open and the offer was ex- accept- extended. Excuse me. How awful that they didn't respond when they had the chance to respond. In fact, we shouldn't just be thinking it. That question should propel us to make every effort to enter through the the narrow door. We should be asking, why didn't they enter while they still had time and how can I? You know, as this dialogue unfolds between the owner of the house and these people, we learn that there are two answers to the first question. Why didn't they enter? And there's one answer to the second question, how can I? The people in this parable who are on the outside looking in were not able to enter because they assumed assumed that whenever they showed up, on time or late, that they were going to be able to walk right into the kingdom, right through this door, that they'd be able to get in because of heredity and proximity. You can see these two status symbols, family connection and association with Jesus, in their conversation with the owner of the house. Take a look first at verse 25 to see heredity. You know, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside, you'll be knocking and you'll be pleading. You'll say, sir, open the door for us. But he will say, I don't know you or where you come from. And we get the heredity hints in two places in this verse. In the first instance, we're dealing with an owner of the house who knows who is and is not a member of his household, of his family. If someone were to come to your house after hours and start pounding on the door and say, hey, I'm a part of your family, I think you'd know whether they were a part of your family or not. That's what's going on here. He's the head of the household. He knows his family members, and he knows that these people are not his family members. The second hint that we get about heredity is at the very end of the verse. It says, I don't know you or where you come from. Their origin is questionable to him. Underscoring again that the, the fact that they're not, even if they think they are, part of his family. 
That's the heredity one. Look at verses 26 and 27 in order to see their claim to proximity. Then you'll say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. And he'll reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. They claim to have spent time with Jesus, sharing meals with him, listening to his teaching. These are claims of great proximity, but according to Jesus, that's not the same as knowing him. See, the repetition of I don't know you, either as family members or disciples, answers our question. Why didn't they enter? They didn't enter because they didn't know Jesus. Entering the kingdom is not a matter of assumed status, but instead it's a matter of knowing Jesus and responding to him while the door is still open. Many of us have similar reasons that assuming, for assuming that when we've ent- that we've already entered God's kingdom or that the owner of the, of the house is going to open the door for us when we come knocking and pleading. And we think that Because we've inherited faith from our family members or because our parents were super involved in church. And so that must mean that we've entered the kingdom ourselves. Or we think that because we went to an Easter service or because we tithe or because we serve in some ministry or because we read the Bible and get acquainted with Jesus' teaching that we've entered the kingdom. Each and every weekend at Christ Community Church, as we gather, we have people who are in the kingdom, people who think they're in the kingdom, and those who know that they're not in the kingdom, but they're making an effort to understand and possibly enter it. It's important for all of us to understand that family inheritance and close association do not equal entrance into the kingdom. The only way to enter through the narrow door, to enter the kingdom, is to respond with repentance Giving up your kingdom, your life of self and stuff and success, and receiving Jesus' kingdom. So Jesus addresses this parable to the crowd, but he also addresses it to you. The door is shut for them, but the door is still open for you. If you're resting on inherited status and inherited faith or assumed association with Jesus, then you're going to be surprised one day to find that you're on the outside looking in. The door is shut. So make every effort to enter through the narrow door, Jesus says. Warning number one, because time is short. And warning number two, because your status doesn't count for anything. Warning number three, delay means exclusion. My brother passed an article on to me a couple of weeks ago, and little did he know how appropriate it would be. I was just starting my study on this topic, and this article was all about this. It was in a news magazine, and it's it's entitled, What Christians Get Wrong About Hell, A Flawed Literalistic interpretation of hell only serves to keep modern skeptics at a distance. And I thought to myself when I read the title, well, I don't want to keep any skeptics at a distance. In fact, I want them to enter through the narrow door, and so I read on. So after this very simplistic caricature of both heaven and hell in Christian theology, the author says that our bad theology of hell is due to a bad view of punishment. God doesn't punish people. This author instead counsels us to take our cues from Plato, who argues that people who do good things receive moral good from those activities, 
while people who do morally bad things miss out on the inevitable goodness that doing the good would have gotten them. It sounds like philosophy, doesn't it? In other words, if you do bad things, then what you miss out on is your punishment. But there's more. You also have to bear the consequences for your bad behavior. So not only do you not enjoy the good that you could have done, but you also live with the effects of the bad that you did do. That, on a cosmic scale, is what hell is, or at least what would be more palatable to a skeptic. In this argument, you design your own hell. That's one way to revise hell. Here's another hell revision option. A few years ago, a pastor took the design your own hell model and added an escape hatch, the second chance. So this is what he writes, and it's in direct contrast to what we're reading here in Luke chapter 13. He says this, Could God say to someone truly humbled, broken, and desperate for reconciliation, Sorry, too late. Many have refused to accept the scenario in which somebody is pounding on the door, apologizing and repenting and asking God to be let in, only to hear God say through the keyhole, door's locked. Sorry, if you'd been here earlier, I could have done something, but now it's too late. Well, that's clearly unthinkable to that author, and so God must give us a second shot at an open door. Well, one problem among many with the article in the news magazine and the quote that I just read to you is that they make Jesus a very misleading person. According to Jesus, in the parable that we've just been working through, a delayed response to Jesus' invitation means a shut door and exclusion from him. If someone has ever said those words to you with a smile on his or her face, filled with glee because they were in and you were out, then shame on them. Their words were true, but their tone and their heart were false. There isn't an ounce of glee in uttering any of this, but that doesn't make it any less true. In fact, it only emboldens the proclamation because it's just that Serious. Listen to the final words of our passage. Jesus says in verses 28 to 30, There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. The fate at the judgment will include being thrown out, weeping, gnashing of teeth, as well as, as we already saw in verse 25, knocking and pleading. All of these words are used to describe the sheer agony, horror, mourning, and despair of hell. The lost, many will be lost, Jesus says. The lost will experience their lostness in a new way. As they watch the king feasting with his loyal subjects at the banquet in his kingdom. Their delay will mean their exclusion from him. 
if you're one of those loyal subjects of King Jesus, if you're a Christ follower, then we have every right in the world to revel in the kingdom that's going to come, the things that we considered last week, to take great joy in what's happening. I hope that as high as that message took you in terms of thinking about the joy that will come when Jesus comes fully and finally to set up his kingdom, I hope that it's matched by the tears that you weep when you consider this. We need more weeping and agony among Christians because of the reality of hell. Jesus had both agony and weeping. Just a few verses after our passage, Luke records these words from Jesus. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, including Jesus a few chapters later, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you, desolate. Similarly, in Luke 19, Luke writes, As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. You didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. We should be weeping in agony because many, Jesus said, will be lost. If you're not a Christ follower, then I want to say don't miss the one who can bring you peace. Recognize the time now of God's coming to you. I plead with you today to enter the narrow door of the kingdom by responding to Jesus. I want to plead with you to recognize that the time is short. You won't have forever to sort this out. I want you to see that your status doesn't count for anything before him. Only responding counts with Jesus. And it responds for everything. I want to help you understand that your delay might mean your exclusion. The door is shut for them, but the door is not shut for you. So make every effort today to enter through the narrow door to the kingdom of God. Because if you do, you won't be excluded. You'll be included. But people often accuse Christians of being so exclusive with their claims about Jesus. And of course, that's dead on. Because there is only one narrow door through which you enter the kingdom. That is a fact. But through that door, in that kingdom, there will be Jews, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their children, and all the prophets, and non-Jews, Gentiles, most of us, people from east and west and north and south, and they will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. That's an incredible vision of an incredible kingdom. This is a universal offer of salvation to anyone who would come to Jesus to be saved, but it's also a limited time offer that comes on God's terms only. And sadly... Many will come late to the party and they'll be excluded. Don't be one of them. Please, don't be one of them. Now we're going to conclude this part of our service. And as we do so, I want to invite the bands to join me at this time. And as they do, I want to tell you that underneath this section of Scripture... There's a wonderful passage. I think Jesus has actually been alluding to it the entire time as he's been talking about this feast in the kingdom, this 
this parable that he's been telling. In Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 9, Isaiah says this. Just listen to these words. Let them soak in. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, he will say, we will say, excuse me, surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Make every effort, Jesus says, to enter through the narrow door into God's kingdom, into his salvation. 